Thursday at noon, I was uh, asked to come and speak down at the high school at Priority One. And Lisa, raise your hand one more time. I'm not trying to embarrass you, but I'm trying to highlight something I think is valuable in our community. And I know that def- definitely uh, Lisa believes it's valuable because she's involved in it. And that is this ministry called Priority One, where uh, student-led ministry where they invite uh, people to come in and speak once a month. And uh, there's a junior high group, and there's a high school group, and and um, <clears throat> there's been times over the years where this ministry was uh, was really big, and there's times where it kind of shrunk down. And and um, and I haven't really been involved. I spoke at Priority One years and years ago, uh, but uh, haven't really been involved that much with it recently. And uh, <clears throat> we showed up down there Thursday. Between the uh, junior high and the high school, there was 50 kids in that between two rooms, and uh, I text out to the leadership group, I said, there's a uh, whole mission field on East Lincoln and Chihuahua, just waiting to be spoke to, just waiting to be encouraged, and uh, you don't have a lot of time, um, you got just, uh, you know, maybe a 15-minute devotional, I tried to make it more conversational than anything, and I tried to leave a little time for kids to ask questions, because kids if you engage with them in a good conversation, they will just naturally start asking questions. And there was some really good questions that arose. But uh, the reason I bring it up is one for all of us to be praying and thinking about that as well. But um, two, two is because I used one of the verses that we're going to get to today in my encouragement to those high schoolers. Uh, that uh, <clears throat> is at the end of Mark chapter 3, and it's the word whoever. It's the word whoever, and I'm just going to put a pin in that right there and not give away and not preach my sermon backwards like I'm tempted to in this moment. But in, uh, we've been preaching through the gospel of Mark, and uh, we've gotten into chapter 3, and I want to back up just a step and say this. In Mark chapter 1, there's two verses that describe what God's intentions are. The verses in Mark chapter 1 that describe what God's intentions are, verses 14 and 15, where Mark records, now that after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, and here's the two points of intention, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. These two parts of God's intentions or God's kingdom proclamation and God's kingdom building. That's what Jesus was there to introduce. That's what they, He was there to talk about. And, and we've said in previous messages is that, that really, and, and this kind of gets kind of uh, slid to the side a lot of times, I believe, in Christianity, but Jesus' main ministry was to preach the gospel, was to share the kingdom. A lot of times, I believe, in Christianity, the we have a tendency to think about and people talk about the miracles. It's awesome. It's great. They talk about the, the, the supernatural things that Jesus did, controlling the weather, the fish, the, you name it. Those are awesome. Those are great. And not to be taken away from in any way, form, or fashion. It's great. It's awesome. But those are evidences of his message, and his message was the gospel. And so this, these two verses really become that kingdom proclamation. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right there. It's as close as your hand is the understanding there. It's within reach. 
it's within grasp. For those first century Jews, they were under the assumption that the Messiah would bring political freedom from Rome, the dreaded oppressive enemy of Israel. But God was up to something much, much, much bigger than just politics. Uh, we just stepped through a season of, <laughs> well, anymore, the, uh, the election cycle just never ends. Uh, it, just go, it, just, it started up again Wednesday morning. And it's just going to go for another two years, and that's just the life that we live. I remember as a kid, it wasn't that way. You had an election season, and then the rest of the time it was just kind of normal life, I would suppose you would say. But God was up to something a lot bigger than just our political climate or our political whims or waves or what direction things are going. God is extending an invitation to a whole new way of living, thinking, and believing that would transcend cultures, governments, and the stereotypes throughout history. Do we understand that? Do we understand that that's the, that is, in essence, is kind of the, the nuts and bolts behind the kingdom proclamation? I'll say it one more time. God's extending an invitation to a whole new way of living, thinking, and believing that would transcend cultures, governments, and stereotypes throughout history. How is he going to pull that off? How is he going to accomplish that? He accomplishes that through sending Jesus to deal with our deepest need. Our deepest need is freedom from sin, not freedom from governmental rule. Our deepest need is to have our sins forgiven. And today we're going to talk about our second greatest need, which is acceptance. Which is acceptance. Now, <clears throat> this is a really a, a polarizing word right now in our culture. Uh, when, when, I, when I say acceptance... Uh, your minds flood in a thousand different directions. Where, where, where is he going to go with that? What does that mean? Are, are we going with the, the biblical definition? Yes. Uh, what about the cultural definition? Well, I think that as we go through, that will kind of be parsed out a little bit. But this idea of acceptance, really, as humans, this is our second greatest need beyond our sins being forgiven. That's what we see being built here in chapter 3 is Jesus is establishing uh, what I want to term, and I'm not, this is not an original thought to me, but I love the concept and I love the picture in my mind when I think about it. God is establishing through the kingdom message, through the work of Christ, He's establishing a forever family. He's establishing a forever family. That's the, th the theme and the thread that we're going to see as we go through chapter 3. Let's dive into it. We'll start in verse 7. We got through six verses last week. I promise you we'll go more than six verses this week. We'll try to get ourselves all the way to the end of the chapter if we can. And then, of course, we have communion to celebrate. Mark chapter 3, verse 7 reads, we'll just read a couple verses. Mark chapter 3, verse 7 starts out, But Jesus withdrew his disciples to the sea and a great multitude from Galilee. Now, before we go further, maybe I should tee this up a little better if you weren't here. Jesus is constantly being kind of rebuffed by the Jewish religious uh, elites because he, he and his guys were not in sync with the normal activities of first century Judaism. They were not in sync, and so they kept challenging, you know, why, you know, why, does your, why, why, do, you, why do your disciples, Jesus, why don't they, this is all in chapter 2, why do they not uh, fast like we do? Why do they, you know, 
break the traditions of the Sabbath. Not what the Old Testament says, but our extra traditions. Why are they doing that? Uh, is he going to heal on the Sabbath? That's what we looked at last week at the beginning of chapter 3. Is Jesus going to heal? And there's, they're sitting there on pins and needles chewing their fingernails down, you know, because they knew on that Sabbath day, here comes a guy, his one hand does not work. It's shot. And is Jesus going to heal him? I think they expected him to heal him. And as I mentioned last week, in that expectation, they were really, in essence, saying this guy is the Messiah, even though they wouldn't say it verbally. So now Jesus pulls back and he withdraws, the word says in verse 7, with his disciples to the sea. And a great multitude from Galilee followed him. And the word says in verse 7, and from Judea, in verse 8, and Jerusalem. And I, I, <clears throat> I do... Eumea, and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they crush him. Uh, this is a great picture that Mark lays out for us on the reality that his ministry was really on the rise. This wasn't a local, regional thing. These guys were coming from everywhere. People were coming from all over. The crowd seemed to come to Jesus near the Sea of Galilee from distant places. If you, if you think of your geography from Galilee, from Judea, Jerusalem, these are, these are not just, this is not just a, something that happened in one little spot. Yet it seems that the crowds were attracted to Jesus more because of his miraculous works than because of his message, which is another constant theme through the Gospels. It's wonderful for people to be attracted to Jesus for sure. But are they attracted to Jesus? And maybe you've just asked the question of yourself, am I attracted to Jesus for the right reason? Is, is Jesus a draw for me for the right reason? Maybe you could ask the question another way. Am I presenting Jesus to people uh, uh, and sharing Jesus with people with the right idea? Am I putting it out there in the right way? These guys, their focus is on what Jesus can do for them instead of on who Jesus is. So they're not going to follow him for a long time with that mentality. We live in a similar sort of a, uh, of a culture in this way. We live in a what have you done for me lately type of a culture. It's all just a real, just these short narratives, these short clips, these short pieces. And we live kind of in our culture, we live kind of from, from one meme to the next. Or we live from one clip to the next. Or one one soundbite or one news piece to the next. And so we live in this constant, just this constant, just click, click, click. Uh, what have you done for me lately? Oh, okay, thanks. 40 seconds later, what have you done for me lately? The next day, what have you done for me lately? This was their MO. This was their mindset. And I'm going to say this is our culture's mindset too. They're just wanting to know what Jesus can do for them. I kind of mentioned this last week when I was sharing a couple of stories of people that have come to see me over the years and have a sit-down visit because their life is in crisis. And when we have a crisis of faith like Blackaby talks about, uh, we have a tendency to ask those questions. But if we come to those questions, if we come to Jesus just for whatever Jesus can do for me, as if I'm a consumer, as if I'm just the, the recipient of all that Jesus has ever done, and not for who Jesus is, then it's going to have a short span. It's going to have a really short 
uh, shelf life. Longevity as a Christ follower revolves around who Jesus is. Underscore that. Longevity as a Christ follower revolves around who Jesus is. Mark goes on to say in verse 10, For he healed many so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him, and the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted. Pause right there in the middle of verse 13. At this time, Jesus was at a critical point in his ministry. His ministry had gotten really big. He had called a few guys together. They started doing things. They started traveling. He started preaching. He started you know, casting out demons. He started healing people. And now this thing has gotten to a, a, a big, uh, kind of a bit of a crescendo, if you will, and uh, there's a pattern, actually. It's not in my notes, but I was thinking about this earlier. There's really a pattern to Jesus' ministry, and that is, is that things get really big. Then Jesus said something that just blows your mind. You know, a phrase like, uh, you'll have no part of me if, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Let me tell you, if Jesus was standing here and said that right now here today, we'd all walk out, wouldn't we? You tell me. You tell me. If somebody said that, and you're thinking like literally, oh, I've got to go up and gnaw on this guy's arm, you know, slice him open and take a drink, you would walk out. You would think, what kind of crazy, you know, snake oil salesman is this? But Jesus' ministry was kind of just that way. It, it, would, it would grow, it would get big, there would be big things happening, and then he would say something really hard to understand, and people, a lot of people would cash it in. And we'll get to those verses in coming sermons. But at this time, Jesus was really at a, a critical spot in his ministry Responding to this opposition that we've read about and studied through in, verses, in chapters 2 and 3, actually Luke chapter 6 records that he spent a whole night in prayer prior to these events that we're going to get to in the next few verses in Mark. I want to say this, Luke says in chapter 6, verse 12, it says, Now it came to pass in those days that he went out on a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, who would also be named apostles. Prior to calling his guys, Jesus spent time with the Father. Jesus spent time uh, just hearing from God and in the presence of God. So he took it serious. It was a critical spot, and there was really nothing normal about Jesus' methods especially for that day. He defended the traditions of the religious leadership. We've talked about that. Of course, they were plotting his destruction. Great crowds followed him, but they were not interested in spiritual things and could be quickly turned against Jesus. We've talked about that. But his response to all this wasn't to panic, not at all. It was to pray and to choose leaders to train. That's his response to what God has called him to do. And, and frankly, just a sub-point in the sermon, that is our call too. That's your call. It's just not up to me. It's not just up to the elders or the deacons. It's up to every one of us to have some sort of an impact, some, point of, some kind of an imprint into other people's lives and to, to call them out and to teach and train them in the ways of the Lord. This decision was massive. It was huge. 
uh, <clears throat> these were men who would carry on what he had started. And without them, the, the kind of the work of the ministry, the message of the gospel would not be extended throughout the world as it was. Uh, now, could he chose up, you know, in his sovereignty, could he have grabbed other people? I'm sure he could have. I'm sure he could have. I'm not saying that that's not true. But Jesus had a very specific plan and a purpose for the guys that he chose. And therefore, in God's wisdom, Jesus chose the first 12 members of the forever family. Now, you might pause when I say that and say, well, what about everybody in the Old Testament? Uh, I get that. I understand that. But Jesus brings in something new. He's, uh, <clears throat> he's, he's completing in his ministry, and then definitely by the time we get to the cross, and, and his death, burial, and resurrection, he's completed the Old Testament and has started in the whole New Testament, if you will. Mark records who he's called out in verse 13. He says, and then they came to him, then he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send, out, <clears throat> send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Verse 16 says, Simon whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to, know, to whom he gave the name Bongeries, that is the son of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who would also betray him, and they went on into a house. Uh, these are 12 ordinary people. In their time, in their day, these are just 12 average men. I could have 12 average men stand up in this room right now. They're just, they're just, they're just average people. Average people. Who, who we have here? We have school teachers. We have self-employed people. We have retired people. We have, we have people in, in all kinds of different industries, all types of different occupations, electricians, you know, carpenters, farmers, you name it. We, we could pick out 12 of you fellas and say, all right, stand up. Well, probably here's what would happen. There would only be 11 of you stand up because nobody would be, want to be the 12th guy to get up out of your chair. Am I wrong? I don't think so. Everything would be like, you know, what's that? It's like the old nose goes deal, only it would be by times 12. You know, nobody wants to be the last one. I guess some kids do. Twelve ordinary guys that changed the world through the power of Christ. When somebody's been with Jesus and when somebody is sent out to serve Him, they can expect that Jesus will give them the power to serve Him. That's, that's an expectation, I think, that's reasonable. In other words, when Jesus called these guys, He's going he's to equip them, and, and He will talk way more towards the end of the gospel about empowering them to do what he's called them to do. We'll just kind of leave that at that. But the process really starts, it starts not as being an apostle and having the office of an apostle, which these guys would eventually obtain. The process really starts in a different spot. It starts as a disciple. It starts as a disciple, and a disciple is just simply a student. That's what a disciple is. A disciple is <coughs> learned by being and hearing from the master. A disciple is one that spent time with, with the master. A, a, a disciple would be, here's a better word probably, a disciple is what we would call in, in our vernacular in our day, an apprentice. 
that you're apprenticing under the master. Now, we use this terminology in certain parts of like construction or, uh, uh, or if you're an electrician, you start off as, as an apprentice. You start off at the bottom. You're the guy that, you know, that's packing all the toolboxes and all the, all the parts and pieces into the job. That's, that's your job. But eventually you kind of move up through. But you can't get to the top without being first at the bottom. Oftentimes I say, if you want to be a good leader, you need to be a good follower first. This is all of that process kind of wrapped up in biblical lingo. These guys started as disciples. There's really some, uh, before we move on, there's some interesting connections with this group of men that Jesus chose. There's two sets of brothers, James and John and Peter and Andrew. Uh, two sets of brothers. There's business associates. There's Peter, James, and John. They were all fishermen. The most intriguing connection between these guys is there's some pretty heavily opposed political opponents. Matthew, who we've talked about in previous sermons, was a Roman collaborating tax collector. And Simon, or Simon the Zealot as we call him, they, they, his group that he came from, they hated Rome. I mean, they hated them with a passion. That's why they're called zealots. They're willing to give their lives to overthrow the Roman government in the first century. That's pretty serious. That means they're ready to go. They're ready to sacrifice. And on the other side, you have Matthew, who, is, who has sold himself out to the Roman government to, to, to collect taxes, even though he was Jewish, he sells himself out to, to collect taxes for the Roman government. So all the Jews hated those guys. Most of the Jews maybe didn't really associate so much with the zealot side, but they kind of like privately cheered them on because they wanted to be free from Rome. So this is some huge opposition. Only Jesus brings that type of people together. Only Jesus brings together people that are that opposed and it can accomplish something so great and so mighty. Then, of course, the last one, the betrayer, Judas Iscariot. Some pretty interesting connections with this group. Let's move forward for the sake of time. Mark records in verse 20, Then the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay, hands, <clears throat> lay hold of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Belizebub, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. So he calls them to himself and says to them in a parables, Jesus speaking, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself, and is divided. He cannot stand, but has an end. Jesus here was in this very interesting situation. And he's describing for us, if you want to keep the context of a forever family, he's describing for us what, what the power of unity does or doesn't do. What the power of unity in a group is about. Also, how destructive division is. He's in an interesting situation. The crowds are growing. They're pressing in. They're wanting a look at the miracle worker. And then his friends come, so back up to the earlier part, to quote-unquote rescue him out of, out of this place, saying essentially, you know, he's crazy. 
You know, well, you know, these, these are guys that Jesus grew up with. These are guys from his hometown. These are guys that step in and say, you know, let's just, you know, kind of trying to like getting a drunk out of a bar. You know, let's get him out of here, you know, and he's, he's out of his mind. He doesn't know. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees, they hear this and they put a spin on it. Now, if you know from previous verses, they've been looking for an opportunity to, to pull him down, to destroy him. In fact, they have their own collaboration of uh, opposition parties coming together to both destroy him. We looked at that last week. You can go backwards in, ver- in chapter 3 and read that. But they take this point. They, the religious leaders spin this thing up as a demonic possession issue to which Jesus then replies, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. That's the parable that he lays out for. But he first talks about this idea of division, that, that, it's, that it's really impossible. You know, what these guys are claiming, that somehow I'm de- demon-possessed, how can somebody that's demon-possessed you know, cast out demons? It doesn't work that way. Nobody can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods. Jesus is looking at every life that's delivered from Satan's domination and says, if I'm plundering the kingdom of Satan one life at a time, that's what he's up to. He's making a statement. He's saying, in essence, there's nothing in our life that must stay under Satan's domination. He's saying, hey, I'm the strong guy. I'm the strong guy. And I'm going to come in and I'm going to plunder. I like the word pilfer. It's not in any translation that I'm aware of. But he's essentially saying, my job here, what I'm doing in, in, in this work, I'm not crazy, but I'm here to pilfer those in Satan's domain and bring them into the kingdom of light. One person at a time. One situation at a time. That's his call. That's his statement. There's nothing in our life that must stay under Satan's domain if we're a believer. Verse 28 says, Assuredly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because they said he has an unclean spirit. So Jesus really actually ups the ante here. He he, he goes an extra step. And a lot's been made about these verses. Let me just say this. I think it's actually the explanation is really simple. And that's this. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is simply denying that the one person that can and will free us from the, gift, that from the grip of sin and death won't. That's what blaspheming the Holy Spirit is. It's, it's denying who Jesus is. That's why it's more so about who Jesus is than just what he can do. It's really simple. These religious leaders were in danger of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because they looked at the perfectly good and wonderful work of God and Jesus and officially pronounced him to be demonic. That's their statement. That's their play. That's, their, that's, that's, what, they were, that's what they were hedging all their bets against or on, actually not against, on, was, was that somehow Jesus was demon-possessed. Jesus says it's impossible to be 
demon-possessed and to cast out demons. You're denying the very gift that God has given. This point is... uh, this pointed to a settled rejection in their hearts against Jesus and, of course, of the Holy Spirit. I like this quote that I thought that really kind of capsulizes the whole area of, of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Henry Ironside, who was a Bible teacher and a preacher and a theologian, pastor and an author, he says this, These words were never intended to torment anxious souls honestly desiring to know Christ. But they stand out as a blazing beacon warning of the danger of perishing in the rejection of the Spirit's testimony of Christ until the seared conscience no longer responds to the gospel message. That's where you're in danger. I've talked to a lot of people over the years like, man, did I do this? And I, you know, there was a time in my life and, and, and I'm just not sure and, and maybe I did and if I did, does that mean... You know, and, and here they're talking to me completely humble, completely transparent, really wanting to know, and seeking God in the process. And I'm like, this is one guy years ago, I just simply told him, I said, the simple fact that we're having this conversation points to me that uh, you don't have anything to worry about. It's, it's not that, you know. Like, you're in good shape because you're wanting to know. You're wanting to see Christ. You're wanting to and, and are believing that Christ died for you. Let's move on. Verse 31. Mark records, Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent <clears throat> to him, calling him, and the multitude was sitting around him. And they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. And verse 35 records, and this is where the word whoever stands out, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus always had people coming to him. He had the crowds coming to him. He had the disciples coming to him. He had his own people, his own people he grew up with uh, there in Nazareth coming to him. He had the Pharisees were coming to him to, to oppose him. He, now he has his siblings and his mother coming to him. There was always somebody coming to place an obligation or condition in front of Christ. And what is his reply? How did he handle this obligation or this challenge or this condition? He handled it with an invitation to be part of his family. That's what he says. Whoever does the will of God is my brother or my sister. Whoever does what God says is part of a forever family. This word whoever really stands out. It's used 225 times in the Bible. It's used in the context of both warning and encouragement. But mostly it's used like it's used here as an open invitation. Of course, the greatest verse in the Bible, John 3.16 records the greatest sacrifice, but it also is a verse that gives us uh, this same word, whoever believes, for God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, that whoever, it's an open invite for everybody, that whoever believes in Him should not die but have eternal life. 
There's uplifting encouragement in Romans chapter 10, verses 11. It says, where the, for the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. I was sharing with the high schoolers that if, the whole premise by which I was shared a little message with them, and like I said, you only get 15, 20 minutes, so you've got to be quick. And you better be relevant. I'll put that in there. Like They'll just tune you out if you're not relevant. But, hey, that's what high schoolers did, right? When I was a high schooler, that's what I did. If you didn't speak my lingo, see ya. And, <clears throat> but the whole premise uh, that, that I laid out is, is what's all behind social media? Like, I just asked these kids, there's 28 kids in there. I said, you know, I presume that all of you guys have a phone, all you guys are on some sort of social media, right? Like, what's the hot one? TikTok, Snapchat? You know, I was joking with them. I said, hey, anybody have a MySpace account? You know, all the old people started laughing. All the young kids in the room right now are like, what, MySpace? What is that about? Isn't that my bedroom? <laughs> uh, no, no, there was a social media platform called MySpace. Anyway, but um, the whole premise behind all of social media simply comes down to this. It comes down to acceptance. It comes down to affirmation. That's why they build into them all of the lights and the... Uh, the likes and the little heart things, you know, you can click on the little heart if you like it, or you can retweet it, or you can re-snap it, or I don't know what all you do. I'm not a Snapchat guy, so I have no idea. But the, the premise is, is that uh, it's acceptance. It's acceptance and uh, affirmation. And Romans here says that whoever believes on him, open invitation to believe on Jesus, will not be put to, what's the word there? Shame will not be put to shame. Shame is the essence of rejection. It's, it's what happens when you're rejected. You feel shameful. So it's interesting right here in one verse, you get both an invitation, but you get an invitation that deals with your deepest struggle, and that's shame. The other whosoever or whoever verse that I had is in the one right here that we just read in Mark 3, 35, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jo Jesus is proclaiming his kingdom here. Jesus is proclaiming with an open invitation to all of us that God's rule and reign can be true and tangible in your life and in my life. That you don't have to live the way you used to live. You don't have to uh, struggle with the things you used to struggle with. That you can be free in Christ. That you can live under a new order, if you will. And it was really hard, I believe, for the Jews there in the first century to really understand and to grasp that God was building this forever family. Uh, not because they didn't think that it was true. Their struggle was is that they didn't think that it would extend beyond them. That was their struggle. So they were doing all they could do, and we'll get into this in coming sermons. They did all they could do to try to just keep power and control in their grasp. They did all they could do to just maintain status quo, don't rock the boat, we're doing good here, we're sitting here looking for the Messiah while he just keeps walking in front of them every day. How many of us have been in that situation in life? So it was a struggle for them. In fact... Paul wrote about it in a different, uses some different language. In Ephesians, he uses the word mystery. There was a mystery about it all that the first century Jews didn't really 
understand, but some 60 years later, Paul, the apostle, writes in Ephesians chapter 3, as he's been explaining a few things about this forever family, and he'll mention it towards the end of the chapter. But I just want to read in a little bit of time that we have left and allow you to just soak in God's word. Paul says this, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I've briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge and the mystery of Christ, <clears throat> which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has been revealed by the Spirit, to his holy apostles and prophets. Notice Paul doesn't look at himself exclusive in that way, that he's including all the apostles and the prophets before. And verse 6 says, in a key verse in this passage, verse 6 says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Notice that how Paul lays that out. That this forever family is not just a select group or not just a select nation, but that it's really broadened out that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, the same body and partakers of His promise. Verse 7 says, Of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of His power. To me, who am, <clears throat> who am less than the least of all the saints, a little reflection into Paul's life before Christ saved him. He was the heavy hitter. He was the, the uh, uh, defender of Judaism. He was the, uh, I'm thinking of a word that I've used many times. Uh, he was the enforcer. Got my hockey guy in the third row. Paul the Apostle was the enforcer of Judaism. Like he was trying to stamp out Christianity initially. That's why he says, I'm the least of all the saints. He says, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what the, is the fellowship of the mystery from which the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Christ. So a little window in the fact that God had all of everything set up ahead of time, that God wasn't just adjusting on the fly, saying, oh man, I better send Jesus down and straighten everything out, uh, of which he did, but the plan was in play from the beginning of the ages. Verse 10, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and the powers and heavenly places according to the eternal purpose by which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you which is, <clears throat> which is your glory. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father, and here's his, his prayer, his parting comments, in the middle of the book, actually. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family, from which the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Do we get, the, do we get what's, what's happening here? Paul's saying, hey, God, they had this all planned out ahead of time, it's being revealed a step at a time. A lot of it was hidden, then revealed in Christ. And what was revealed in Christ, Paul's talking about now, some 60 to 70 years later, saying, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. 
God's creating a forever family. We're now 2,022 years later, a part of that, if you are a Christ follower, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you're a part of God's forever family. That He would grant to you forever family, I just inserted that, according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you might be rooted and grounded in love. May be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And we could just close it right there. In fact, if somebody wants to go downstairs and get the kids, thank you, David. To bring this to a close and transition into communion, I simply just want to say this, that Jesus is building his kingdom by building a forever family of followers. That's his goal. And that's, how, that's, the, that's the window that we have to see one another. That's the, the outlook that we need to have with one another. Not as opponents, right? Uh, we need to see one another as a family. I was sharing with a brother yesterday that in the days that we live in, if there's one thing that I would like to see. I would like to see churches being strengthened together. Like if you look at all of the New Testament, if you look through the epistles, if you just read through it, you're going to see one thing, one narrative kind of pop off the page, and that's these churches were connected and interdependent on one another in a good and a healthy way. And, and that's just kind of a whole side note, not in my notes, but something that's really been on my mind lately. The days that we live in, I think, requires the same thing. God's building a forever family. And so guess what? You've got brothers and sisters up the road, down the road, you know, up in the valley, attending other churches. <clears throat> that's not our competition, those are our brothers and sisters. Those are our family members. He's building a kingdom by building forever family of followers. The invitation is wide open. It's an invitation to come and surrender to Jesus. And really, really, this is what it comes down to. So if you want to know how it applies individually, the invitation is to allow God to build a, a, a forever family, a kingdom person, a kingdom man, and a kingdom woman by letting him rebuild you. So that's the personal application. Just let Jesus rebuild you. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever you're not surrendering to him, surrender to him. Let him rebuild you. Let him deal with the things that you haven't been able to deal with. He's building it, and he's building it in a family context. He's the one person that can handle it. And that's exactly why we celebrate communion because Jesus sacrificed himself for us and now is in the process of rebuilding us that we could partake in his heavenly family let's uh, celebrate communion if the guys will come on up if the worship team will come on up